Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we talk with diabetic food coach, Janet Sanders. Janet received her certification as a health counselor at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition from Columbia University. She is also a designated holistic health practitioner from the American Association for Drugless Practitioners. Janet is the founder of Great Life, a national health coaching practice with a focus on chronic health concerns such as diabetes and other blood sugar issues. She also founded the Blood Sugar Central Coaching Club. Currently, she runs three programs, all with the aim to help people live a sugar-free lifestyle, stop yo-yo weight gain, and to keep blood sugars under control. Janet was a regular contributor to Zappella's Ask the Diabetes Coach column. She is author of two books, The Diabetes Coach Approach, and most recently, her upcoming book, Break Free from the Blood Sugar Blues, How to Cut Sugar and Yo-Yo Weight Gain, Conquer Diabetes, and Get Your Life Back for Good. She is also a meditation teacher and a trained cook from the Kushi Institute and a pop fitness dance instructor. Welcome, Janet. Hi, everybody, and thank you guys very much for having me. All right, thank you. So we always like to start with the uh, beginning of your story, the personal side of your story. And I understand that you were an attorney, and from there you moved to health coach. So can you tell us, please, how that happened? Sure. Basically, as everybody knows, being an attorney is pretty stressful. And (laughs) I have a history of having loving everything sugar And I really was alleviating my stress for years through eating and other habits that weren't serving me. And also diabetes was in my family. So to make a long story short, I ended up being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in 2001. And I wanted to have a holistic approach. So I went to a doctor with a degree in integrative nutrition. And she helped me turn my diabetes around with diet, exercise, targeted supplements, things like that. And with my personality, I developed a 12-step program for myself to turn my own diabetes around. And it worked so well that she started referring patients to me. And it was really working. I I had my living room full on Saturdays. And before long, I decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I should go back to school for nutrition. So that's what I did. And to make a long story short, I founded my company, Great Life Inc., and and have been doing it ever since. I found that I really have a love for coaching. Okay, thank you. All right, so that's your background. Now, specifically, how did you discover the importance of the sugar-free approach? Like, what was your aha moment, especially given that in the field of nutrition and diabetes, until very recently, amongst the chosen enlightened, that was not something that generally people were talking. So how no, did you it wasn't. And as a matter of fact, when I was doing my own research, what really surprised me was that none of the experts agreed about sugar. And if when I looked at the cookbooks and everything from, you know, the American Diabetes Association, which is supposed to be the expert 
all of the recipes had sugar in it. And that just to me just seemed to totally not make any sense because our pancreas can't handle sugar. And so I really was doing an experimentation on myself and, and cut out all of the sugar in all of its forms. I cut out added sugar, hidden sugars, foods that cause your blood sugars to rise real quickly, and most fruit. And within a month or two, my, my sugars were normalized at that time with no medication or anything else. And I also found that the weight just fell off. I wasn't trying to diet. I was really focused on my blood sugars. So that's how I discovered it. And then I just started doing more and more research and looking for the people and talking about sugar. And I also took a chemistry course to understand really how the food was working. And I'm a big believer, if you understand how your body works, then you can come up with creative solutions and solutions that work. So that's how that came about. Okay, thank you. All right, so in your the material that I've looked at, one of the things I'm really struck with your writing and your like your lead magnet that I was talking about earlier is that you have a very clear way of explaining things and diagramming them. So I'm going to ask you verbally if you can just explain for people for our listeners how does sugar actually contribute to diabetes? And I want the quick answer, not the I know I will try answer. to make it as quick as I can. But basically, you're very skilled at it, so let's hear your version. <laughs> Basically, when we eat something with sugar in it, especially refined sugars or table sugar, maple syrup, what happens is it immediately enters our bloodstream and we get a rush of insulin because insulin is a hormone that wants to take that sugar, put it into your cells for energy, and some of it gets stored in your liver to be used later. What happens is that's a normal thing. Our bodies are designed to handle sugar, but in our society, because we're eating sugar all the time and too much processed foods that have sugar in them, what happens basically is our pancreas starts to wear out and also we're getting too much insulin, believe it or not, and our cells become what we call resistance. People have called, heard of insulin resistance. And when that happens, the sugar can't enter our cells, or as much of it can't enter our cells. So therefore, it starts circulating around in our blood, and more of it's going into our liver. And over the period of time, it becomes worse and worse, where less and less is getting into your cells, more is going into your liver. Your liver can only hold so much stored glucose. So more and more of it starts circulating into your body, and worse, your body starts to store the excess glucose as fat. So at that point, when there's too much sugar in your blood, that's when it comes up as diabetes or prediabetes. Before that, it's called insulin resistance. So that was short of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And what I often say to my clients and students is that that toxic waste that the person gets, you know, the belly fat, yes. is actually a temporary holding pattern for that toxic sugar that's in there. So it's almost like the adipose tissue serving us, although not, not in the long term. It is. Yes. It is. The insulin is actually trying to save your life. And I, I write that in my book. It's saying, okay, you've got all this sugar circulating in your blood. I'm going to try, we're going to try to put it into your liver, but your liver can only hold so much. So once all of those stores are used up, then your body stores the glucose as fat in trying to keep it from basically killing you. And, yeah. and your sugars rise to the 400, 500, 600 levels that some people get that lands them in the hospital. Right. And for those of us in Canada, that would read as anything uh, sort of above 7.58 or yeah. 9 or 10 
or even 12, 15. There you go. Okay, so now that's sugar. What about mm-hmm. refined carbohydrates? Like, you know, we'll, we'll see, especially mm-hmm. in the Facebook group, people saying, well, you can't eat starchy carbs. Like, so what's the problem there? That's, well, the problem there sugar. is that there are certain foods that may not have any sugar in it, but your body doesn't know the label. It still interprets it as sugar because of the way the food's digested. So for example, grain-based flour, when grain is ground into flour, when it's in your mouth, it immediately turns into sugar, just as if you were eating a teaspoonful of maple syrup. The same thing goes for not everyone, everyone's biochemistry is different, but for a lot of people, potato, white potatoes metabolize that way. For a lot of people, white rice metabolizes that way. And of course, and processed foods, which mostly have, you know, brown types of flours in them or other types of things that metabolize quickly as sugar. So that's the problem. And it goes through the same process that I just described. Once your body interprets it as sugar, it digests it the same way it would, you know, a chocolate chip cookie or eating a bar of chocolate. So that's the problem. And I will say that's why in my program, I say when if somebody wants to go quote unquote sugar free, it's not just table sugar for them. It may be also these fast acting carbs as well as the sugar and fruit, sugar even in dairy and lactose. Right. So you, okay, so you're talking about dairy, you're talking about fruit, starchy carbohydrates, yeah. and you also mentioned grains. Okay, so it does really beg the question, but I want to put that off for a second about what do you do for vegetarians where that is what they're eating. But we'll get to that in a second. Before we get to that, can you give a generic explanation of your dietary approach and how that's different for the the, the diabetic or the pre-diabetic or the non-diabetic? Or is there a difference? Well, my approach actually, because most of my clients, the clients that I work with are either know that they're insulin resistant or they have diabetes or a lot of people come because they're experiencing yo-yo weight gain, which has an underlying insulin component, insulin resistance component, or they have issues with sugar in and of itself and they just feel either I'm a quote unquote addicted to sugar or I, sugar is just causing a problem in my life and I want to change my relationship with sugar. And my approach, basic approach is the same for all because what I start with is a basic food plan, which is basically whole food, quality carbohydrates, high quality protein, no sugar. And generally, it's about 50% of non-starchy vegetables, 25% healthy and good for you proteins based on your style of eating, and 25% other, which would be things like grains or starchy veggies or fats on dairy. So the emphasis is on vegetables. And the way that I differentiate based on what your issues are is because everybody's biochemistry is different. So we take a look at that. And then through a series of assessments and, and working with the clients, we try to find out, okay, well, what are your trigger foods? What are the things that if someone's testing their blood sugars, because your blood sugar could go up more than other people. If you're not diabetic, especially someone who's working with addiction. It's really a lot about what are your trigger foods? What are your emotional triggers? What types of things do you want to avoid? So then we narrow that down. And I would say also, I work on a basis of crowding out foods and then adding in foods. So it's not a dietary approach. We first say, okay, let's crowd out added sugar, and then let's work on crowding out those fast-acting carbs. Then let's see how you're doing with fruit. You know, 
Some people can tolerate more fruit than others. I'm really not, I don't work on a basis of there's any food that you can't eat. I would say the only thing that's similar across the board is added sugar. People, anyone that I work with, added sugar is an issue. And I'm, and even with that, honestly, I don't say it's a never ever food, but it's certainly, you know, a once in a while food if it's not, and if it's a trigger for you now, you know, we're going to bypass the added sugar. What's your opinion on nut-based flour, like almond flour, coconut flour, those flours that tend to be less glycemic, according um, to yeah. the experts? I, well, I think there's two things. In and of themselves, as an occasional food, I think they're fine. For myself, they do not raise you know, my blood sugars. I don't get a big blood sugar spike, so I think that they're fine. I think emotionally what you've got to look out for. And this happened to me during, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've had periods of this where if you're just repeating the same pattern with those flowers, then no, I would say if what you're trying to do is deal with addiction and live a different way, then if you were eating chocolate chip muffins for breakfast and now every day you're having a, oh, I can have a chocolate chip muffin, but it's almond flour every day. If someone really wants to change their life, I would say, no, that's not a great thing. So you really, but, but I think it's fabulous that those things are there because if it's your birthday and you want to celebrate with a cake, you know, then, or, you know, something like that, then I think it's good to have, I often eat waffles or something like that. And I'll make, I'll use a little coconut flour and you have to know how to use them as well. People have used recipes and go, oh, that was terrible because you can't, you can't play around with baking. And I honestly don't do a lot of it <laughs> for that reason. You have to be really careful. On that subject, what do you, what do you say about protein, protein flour? Or protein shakes. Yeah, like protein I think stuff. that's fine. I do a protein shake every day. I think it's fine. And with the, the protein shakes, the real issue is fruit. You know, the, the big popular thing used to be pile it high with strawberries, you know, strawberries, pineapple, I don't know, bananas, you know, this big fruit explosion. And actually, when I, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't realize about bananas. So I was having a lot of smoothies with bananas and having an issue so I do think smoothies are great. I do one every day with unsweetened acai and a protein powder. I, I'm not vegetarian, so I use whey powder, but there's certainly a lot of vegetarian powders out there and almond milk, something like that. And I think they can be a great thing, can be a big help for a lot of people. Okay. All right. So just to go back a little bit, you were talking about some carbohydrates that some people can eat. Is it possible to eat even, I think we certainly will agree that no added sugar and probably refined carbohydrates, but can you eat too many complex carbs? Well, yes, you can eat too much of any food. And if you are insulin resistant or you're really having issues with sugar, I've had to severely cut back on grains. That doesn't mean that grains aren't a good food. And also I would like to note that diabetes is a progressive disease. So when I was first diagnosed, I could eat oatmeal almost every day and I would add protein powder to it. No effect whatsoever. 20 years later, I can't eat oatmeal any longer. I'm still healthy, but I have to be a lot stricter now. Even if you're doing really well, people think there's a cure for diabetes. It's not that it's a cure. It's that it can go into remission. And if you're eating well, then your blood sugars will be normalized. But, but if you start eating certain foods. So basically, the short answer is yes. You can eat too many grains. Rice is a tricky one. A lot of people say, well, I could eat brown rice, not white rice. Brown rice will send my blood sugars soaring through the sky. So if I'm working with a client who is, let's say, 
they they say, I can't stop these cravings. It may be because eating too many grains, because where the cravings come in, and I think this is an important point for people to understand, when your blood sugars go very high, then they go very low. You may not even realize it, but when you're in the low state, that's when your body's trying to reach homeostasis and come back to balance. And that's when it starts calling for carbs. So I do have a lot of clients say, I don't understand. I'm not eating sugar at all. Why am I getting all of these cravings? So I like my clients to keep a food journal when I'm working with them. They don't have to do it their whole life, but that helps. So if they go for a week, we can, and they're still craving sugar things, then we can look back and see what they were eating. So I think you said that you found that you were pre-diabetic or diabetic at some point. That was how your story started, right? And then you uh, said that it's a chronic progressive condition, but my guess is, not my guess, I'm pretty sure you found a way to manage it or put it in remission, but you're still checking your sugars on a regular basis. Oh, yes. They're fine. Like, like, really? Like, even though they're... Well, I go through periods. Like, I'll tell you the truth. In the last week, I I haven't tested them. After you've been doing it for a certain time, you start to know which foods... And that, and I also do like to teach my clients an intuitive eating. You know, I think clarity is really important. So people, if you understand how your body works, you know, certain foods that you should stay away from. And then once you know the foods, you know, once you've tested a whole bunch of times with certain foods, then you just know not to eat them. So I don't test my sugars all the time. I know how I feel. However, I'll give you an example, and this had to do with rice. I hadn't eaten rice in a really long time, and we went out, and I I decided I'm going to have some sushi because, heck, there's hardly any rice in there. It was, you know, mostly salmon and vegetables and blah, blah, blah. I came home, sorry to say blah, blah, blah on air. At any rate, my blood sugars went up to 350, and it was a big surprise to me. And then I was running around exercising, trying to get the blood sugars down really quickly. So... Yes, it is definitely progressive. And, you know, there are certain things I eat much stricter and less now than I do when I was first diagnosed. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And also when your sugars were high like that, and you were probably feeling uh, when they started to crash, did you actually see a concomitant rise in cravings, like wanting to eat? No, not not in that instance, because I actually didn't get them down that low. I got them down to normal, not where where they even crashed. And I use something called a continuous glucose monitor where it's actually really cool because you can keep testing it. Like I was walking around the house really fast, doing fast exercise, trying to bring it down. And as I was doing it, I could keep testing it, say, okay, now it's going down 20 points. It's going down. Uh So it's a great invention. It's uh, much better than pricking your fingers. Oh, for sure. I wish we had the same thing for ketones, a ketone. uh, Yes. 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 Somebody's got to discover that. Okay. So all of this discussion about carbohydrates and, you know, rice and how, please explain how you would work with a vegetarian where that's what they're dealing with because they're not eating proteins in the standard meats and whatnot. I mean, it's definitely a lot trickier if you're vegetarian and then double that if you're vegan. Now, if you're vegetarian, my program is pretty easy to do because you're going to be filling your place with non, you know, you're going to really be focusing on non-starchy vegetables. And that's the bulk of what I eat, any sorts of types of non-starchy vegetables. Describe um, what you mean. What, 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 what are we talking about? Okay, so that would be like green vegetables, kale, peas, carrots. You're in the orange category. Okay. Beets, or, even though beets have sugar, they're, they're pretty healthy for you. But although I try not to eat a whole lot of them. But I'm trying to, radicchio, so those types of lettuces. I'm going around the color chart. A cauliflower. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Cauliflower is a big one. Broccoli, mushrooms, asparagus, you know, Brussels sprouts, the whole world of vegetables. And then, you know, the starchy vegetables that I mostly eat is sometimes sweet potato. And also regular zucchini squash is another big one that I'll eat. So that's the mainstay. For protein, if you're vegetarian, you're probably going to be eating things like tofu, if you know about it, maybe tempeh, beans you can eat. Quinoa has a lot of protein. It's actually, quinoa is a full protein. So as opposed to some other vegetables where in terms of amino acids, it's not a full protein, but quinoa actually is. And then there are actually, people don't know that there are vegetables that have a lot of protein in them. I actually wrote a list down. Mushrooms, peas, spinach, asparagus, broccoli, artichokes, cauliflower, kale, edamame. So you actually can get protein as a vegetarian from a number of sources, from the vegetables that you're eating, from certain grains like quinoa, from things like tofu, tempeh, and then from beans. The main thing that vegetarians and vegans need to be careful of is eating highly processed protein. I mean, the big thing now is, you know, you can eat fake chicken, you can eat fake fish, you can get, you know, your hot dogs, all of this stuff. And that's fine for a treat. However, it really has a lot of oils in it. It's highly processed like anything else. It's not a great way to go if you're trying to get protein. And a word about beans, because I get a lot of questions about that, because people who are trying to go keto look at beans and go, I'm not eating beans, 45 grams of protein, forget it. But what they don't understand is it's a very complex, it's a complex carb that has the types of starch in it that's going to your body has to assimilate. It has to work harder to digest it. So you're not going to get that big spike spike in blood sugars and the big crashes when you eat beans. It's going to digest totally differently. However, I would again say you don't want to eat a whole bowl of beans. The thing with beans, if you're going to eat them, is combine them with vegetables, combine them with something like quinoa. And then your your pan- I always say let your pancreas work like a Rolls-Royce engine. Then it's going to you know, go up a little bit, down a little bit, up a little bit, down a bit. So beans are okay as long as you eat them in moderation. Now, one one of the things that I hear people who are, I guess, more on the on the carnivore continuum say about the vegetarian diet is that although there are proteins in plants, they're not as bioavailable, and therefore you'd have to eat a lot to get the equivalent amount of protein, and that would just be far too many carbs. So what would you say to that? Well, I would say that that's true to an extent, but that if the idea is to have a combination. So if you're eating vegetables, you're vegetarian, the idea is to pick the ones on a routine basis that are the highest in protein Mm -hmm. and then combine that with your beans, combine that with your tofu. So, you know, just if you're not vegetarian, you don't have to worry so much about which vegetables am I picking, which ones have the highest protein, but you just want to always err on the side of eating vegetables every day that are higher in protein. You can't rely on that altogether. You'll need something like tofu, something like beans, something like quinoa to get additional tofu. But, you know, looking at the plate, as I've talked about it, if you think of your plate as 50% you know, vegetables, 25% your fats and everything, and only 25% protein. I think people get too hung up on protein and are used to our diet where it used to be a big piece of steak or a giant piece of chicken as the protein in this teeny little bit of vegetables. So you're not really going for that 
you know, that degree of protein in your diet. It's not necessary. So you actually can get plenty of protein and you know, they can add protein powder to a smoothie. It's another thing you can do. They can add, you can throw protein powder into anything. Whole Foods makes a whey powder, vegetarian protein powders that have no taste. So if you're worried about it, just make cauliflower mash and throw a bunch of protein powder in there. And uh-huh. you know, so you can always be getting an, enough protein. Vegans, you know, they ha- have it even harder. And one thing I forgot to mention with vegetarians is eggs. I mean, a lot of people who are vegetarian will use eggs and have, you know, an egg for breakfast or throw an egg into something that they're, you know, they're cooking. Also, dairy has some protein. So maybe eating some yogurt and I'll often eat yogurt and throw protein powder in there and make like a pudding. So there's a whole lot of ways as vegetarian to get your protein. Vegan, it gets a little harder because now they're not eating cheese. They're not, they're not eating cheese. They're not eating eggs. Most vegans, while they're cutting, they're not having dairy. So now they're really reliant on protein from sources, from beans, from quinoa, from vegetables and from things like tofu and my daughter is vegan and she, you know, in the beginning, she said, yeah, mom, in the beginning, I was a dirty vegan. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? She's like, well, I was at, you know, out here in California, you can go anywhere and get, you know, fried, you know, fried chicken and you can get, you know, go out and have a fish dinner and it's all breaded and inside it's all this fake, you know, protein stuff. So that's the thing that vegans have to be uh, very aware of. So it's not impossible, but it, it, it is, you really have to work at it more, I'll be honest. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and I'm excited to share with you our sweet sobriety course for August. The Neuroscience and Psychology of Procrastination. How to turn your procrastination pain into your personal power. A lot of what we have been led to believe about procrastination is wrong. It really has nothing to do with time management. While everybody may procrastinate, not everyone is a procrastinator. Research has found that as many as 20% of people are chronic procrastinators. Telling the chronic procrastinator to just do it is like saying to someone with addiction to just stop using their drug of choice. A perfect storm of procrastination occurs when an unpleasant task meets a person who's high in impulsivity and low in self-discipline. Most delayers expose a tendency for self-defeat. They can arrive at this point from either a negative state, fear of failure or perfectionism, or a positive one, the joy of temptation. These qualities have led researchers to call procrastination the quintessential breakdown of self-control and self-discipline. Procrastination is predominantly about our inability to self-regulate. You know what you ought to do and you're not able to bring yourself to do it. It's the gap between intention and action. We can rewire the brain to change these patterns and we can create neurodiscipline. This course will show you how. In this course, you will learn how to assess where you're at on the pure procrastination scale, the main avoidance archetypes or procrastination types, a tale of two brains, I will, I want, I won't, the role of craving in procrastination, the real story behind procrastination and emotional regulation. 
The five main mental hindrances. The pleasure pain principle. Something over nothing. From self-sabotage to self-control to self-care. Combating decision fatigue. How to retrain the brain's alarm system in order to restore higher cognitive functioning. Strategies to help you expand your window of tolerance. Mastering neurodiscipline. Seven mind shift tips that trick the brain. And finally, how to move from reaction into response that allows for resolve in your procrastination challenges. This interactive seminar on the newest discoveries about procrastination, mood, and the emotional components of why we procrastinate is starting August 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will run for four weeks at that same time ending August 30th. What you get is hours of pre-recorded videos, downloadable resources and suggested at-home practices and four one-hour live support sessions with replay because they will be recorded. The cost is $50 US and you can sign up at www.sweetsobriety.ca. You'll probably wait for the last day. See you in August. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. So the, one question that I have, and I, I don't know if this is, well, tell me what you think about this reasoning. Uh, in my mind, I'm thinking some people are just really more carb sensitive than others. And it might be that the person who's super carb sensitive will not do well as a vegetarian, but that somebody who is not as carb sensitive can tolerate a, more of a, a plant-based approach. What do you yes. think about that? I, I think that's absolutely true. And for example, you know, someone who's vegetarian, who's not diabetic like me, well, yeah. they can have, you know, pasta for dinner. They can have raviolis. I mean, they can do a lot more with, you know, Buddha bowls and stir fries and things like that because they may be carb sensitive, but not to the same, or they can have more quinoa, things like that. Uh But I am definitely more carb sensitive. So there's a lot more things that, you know, have to be cut out. And therefore I do eat, I'm not pure vegetarian for that reason. I guess I'm more pescatarian. I would say I try, if I'm going to eat protein, I try to eat more fish, particularly salmon, because the omega-3 is in there. But every once in a while, I do have ground turkey or I'll have some free-range or organic chicken, something like that. And, you know, I go round and round in my mind because I'm very environmentally conscious and I'm an animal lover and all of that. But I've experimented over the 20 years. And when I do not have some protein, in, uh, which is meat-based or poultry-based or fish-based, um, the cravings for me really kick in big time and I find it very difficult to stay on track. So it is an issue and it's a hard one for many to deal with. Okay. Well, and I think you kind of mentioned before that a valuable tool could be a CGM for two weeks, right? That you get at Walmart where it's like freestyle Libra or the yeah, Libra yeah. too. And you get it at Walmart? Yeah, for like $100, you get oh it for God. two weeks. You just have to ask for it behind the counter and it's a free app that you can just put on your phone. And, and again, you just scan it. Right. And this can be such great data and information for you if you're exactly. trying to determine how do I respond to certain foods and which foods affect my blood sugar more? Like I wore one for two weeks and it was very interesting. I went for a massage and my blood sugar went so low that the alarm (laughs) went off 
And it was very interesting to the people at the massage clinic because they were like, well, if I have diabetic patients, this is something that I should be aware of that, you know, this, this massage can have that much of a like downward effect on our blood sugar. I was going to say with my clients and my program is a three-phase approach. And the first phase, we're really working on eliminating sugar. The second phase, we're working on personalizing the food plan and working on other aspects, good sleep, stress management, mindfulness, meditation, all of those things, because all of those things will have an impact on blood sugar levels as well as cravings, especially if one's an emotional eater. And then in the third phase, um, I really get more into the emotional eating, the decluttering, decluttering your brain. And it's more of the, so we build up to that, the mental aspects. But yes, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I'm going on vacation for 12 days. So when I'm on vacation, my blood sugars are so great. They're so, so well, when we were in Aruba one year and I looked and it was like 80 and I probably was eating not even as well as I normally would, but my blood sugars were great in retirement. Now my blood sugars are absolutely much better than they used to be. Yeah. Cortisol plays a huge role and we don't even know how detrimental it can be for sure. So you mentioned that the first step is eliminating sugar. And what happens when you run into somebody with a food addiction? How do you deal with the client resistance in your program? Well, the first thing that I do with all of my clients is really to get into their brain and do some work on assessment. You know, where are you now? Trying to uncover what their roadblocks are, what their resistances are to this whole process. And, you know, one of the main things with all of this is attitude in that you've got to have a desire to want to heal and to turn your you know life around. If they have a lot of resistance, as long as they're not someone like who's not deathly ill from, you know, their di- their diabetic numbers are like 400, 500, and we've got to get something going real quick, then I'll work with them on crowding out slowly. You know, we'll work together and say, okay, what are the things that are giving you most trouble? Do you eat salad? Do you get salad dressings? Yes. And can you look, you know, we'll start reading labels. Let's get rid of all the salad dressings that have sugar in it. You know, what type of tomato sauce do you you eat tomatoes? So we'll work like that. We'll, we'll start looking at the foods that they're eating. Let's do a clean out and, and start getting rid of everything that's in the foods that you're purchasing. Then, because they barely notice that the taste isn't that different, and then they'll start to feel a little better. Then we'll maybe go to recipes. A lot of things people have trouble with is beverages. Oh my goodness, I'm used to putting, you know, a ton of spunge in my coffee or sugar in my coffee, and it is a matter of changing your taste buds. So when you talk about people with resistance, I do try to help them to change their taste buds so that they start to not be so upset about not having sugar. And then another big important thing is substitutes. And once again, people are going to be different. It depends on your triggers. But like my brother, he had a really hard time. He's diabetic. He really had a hard time, come, you know, putting things aside. So we came up with a really cool pudding for him. And it was yogurt with a little ricotta. I can't say I discovered this. South Beach really came up with these ricotta whips. But, you know, it was ricotta and some yogurt and some cocoa powder and a little bit of stevia. And that really kept him you know, happy. So it really just depends. And once again, it depends on on the person's triggers. If they can't have anything sweet, it's a little harder. But the type of person you're talking about who's resistant, 
generally doing some substitutions will help them. And also to start bringing in sweet tastes from other things. Our bodies do crave sweet tastes and maybe mentally we're craving sweet tastes. So maybe sweet potatoes, things like that. So that's how I deal with it, just on a crowding out slowly, slowly, slowly till it goes like a triangle. So like there's yeah. So it sounds like a harm reduction approach, right? Yes. To just get them to a place where then they're more and more willing to get to that goal of eliminating everything. Yeah. I mean, we definitely found that as a very successful strategy as well. Do you specifically work with like craving management and how do you work with clients around that? Yes, we, I definitely, because cravings is such a big part of it. And the cravings can be twofold. It can be physiological, physical cravings, as well as emotional, you know, cravings, if you're emotional, you know, eater. So I try to deal with the, just like doctors do with disease, really, I try to deal with the physical cravings first and to make sure that we're not dealing with those. And, you know, that may take some time. There may be times when someone has a craving and if they're keeping a food journal, we can figure out what caused that. On the emotional, you know, level, then, you know, we've got to start dealing with, is it reactive? Like for me, anxiety is my trigger for sweets. So I really need to get to work with someone and get to know them, you know, if they find that they've had cravings, when do they occur? You know, what's going on? I, and I also have methodologies. I call mine the stop methodology for not eating, trying, sometimes it doesn't always work, but to not eat food when that craving comes in, to stop the action, to slow down, to figure out how you're feeling at that point. What can I do differently? I want to bring people to a point of conscious eating because, as you know, it's that unconscious where you come home from work, you haven't eaten all day, so you're having a physical reaction, you're also stressed out, and you're standing in front of a cabinet, and before you know it, you've eaten a whole box of something. That's unconscious eating. So if you can slow that down when you're standing in front of the cabinet, like, okay, I'm about to open this cabinet and shove a whole bunch of stuff in my in my mouth slowing it down. What's going on for me? What do I feel? How do I feel right now? Do I have something else I can do? Sometimes somebody may still go with the food, but I find even for myself, it'll be less and there's an awareness there. So now I will say I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So I go to a certain level. I know where my boundaries are. If someone's emotionally, they've identified as from anxiety or this or that, but if someone is eating because of severe trauma, you know, from childhood, maybe they were abused and they ate to help themselves. I can help them stay on track with the cravings. However, we're going to work with someone who really can help them with childhood trauma. That's not my, so that's where the two dovetail, but very often I'll work with them and, and okay, this is what my therapist recommends. Okay. How can I help you stay on track with that? So it's a fine line between certain types of emotional eating, stress eating, and someone who's really eating out of, you know, a severe trauma or something like that. But yeah, we have to, cravings are ever going. And, you know, Vera, I do see a lot of people in the group who really beat themselves up. And I've, and I've posted about this. Honestly, I eat very clean and I'm a very aware person. I cannot say that my cravings have a hundred percent gone away. If anxiety kicks in for me, I'm going to, I'm going to crave food. So 
you know, maybe for some people it can, but I would say for the majority of people, that sense of, oh, I, I want to fix this with something sweet doesn't ever go away. The difference is that now you have tools in your tool bag and yeah. techniques so that you don't have to give into that craving. You have other things you can do. You know what other kinds of foods you can eat. Yeah. I mean, what you're, what you're describing in the addiction world, we would call euphoric recall. Like you yes. have still that memory, of a very strong memory of how when you're anxious, you um, sweet mitigates the anxiety. Right. That never goes away. That that's a memory that every right. will have. But you're right. It's it's learning to have that pause between the feel and react, and then the toolbox that we use in that pause. And and you're you're really aware of that. I think that's the key there. Because food is tricky. You know, we're dealing with food all day and hunger all day. So we're always making decisions about what to eat, whether we should eat, whether not to eat. And I, you know, one of the things that I you know, tell my clients is every time you're making a decision and I work with my clients understand, well, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Is it just not eating sugar or do you want to lose weight or do you want to feel better about yourself? Or, you know, what, what is it you're trying to achieve? So every food decision is going to take you towards that goal that we've determined, or it's going to take you away from that goal. And, you know, you try to, you stay on the path and sometimes you go, you waver off the path or you might be tempted to go off the path but with the tools you can get back on. Yeah. But it's, I don't, I try to not do a lot of negative self-talk about, oh my God, I was so bad and I did this. And because for a lot of people, that'll just lead to three more days of just the heck with it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so that, that actually probably dovetails nicely into, if you could tell us a little bit about your programs. So, so cause you have three different programs, presumably with I think they're time frame related. So what yes, yes, they are. And they're all based upon this methodology that I developed, the 12 step methodology that I described, which is done it, which is four phases. And the first phase is really um because by the way, for folks, that's not the 12 step program. This is no, I know step. it is yeah. not it okay. is not the AA 12 step program. Right. It just happens to have, you know, 12 steps. So okay. I was confused at first going, what's going on here? Okay. okay. Exactly. But the first phase of these steps is embracing change and, and getting the sugar out of your system and starting to, you know, add in crowd out foods, add in foods. The second phase is more living free from sugar, where now we're really personalizing our food plan and getting into things like sleep, you know, getting restful sleep, exercise, all of the other things that enhance your food plan, and also getting more into the practical aspects, a lot into the practical aspects of shopping and cooking and food preparation, because my program is very practical in nature. I think that's important. And then once we go through that, then we're going to delve into how do you stay free? Because I do want to say here that it's the staying sugar-free that I see all over the internet when I go into different groups. It's not, you know, so much starting people don't have as much of a hard time starting as staying. So how do you um, manage your mind? How do you de- I even help people declutter their space because declutter actually can cause a lot of anxiety for people and they don't realize and can keep you in a cycle of going back to food. It also, if your kitchen's really cluttered, then who wants to cook in there? So we do (laughs) a kitchen pantry declutter. So a lot of that, and also this is where we're really working on 
what habits are like the fabric of your life. So what habits are sabotaging you? What behaviors are sabotaging you? And how can we, you know, change that? So we work a lot on in the third phase of the mental aspect, changing habits, changing behaviors, and also then really trying to enjoy life. How do you do social occasions? How do you go to a wedding? I get a lot of questions about the summer. It's barbecue season. What do I do now? Because what people really want ultimately is to love their life and and to be happy. Like, yeah, they want to get the sugar out, but they really want to live a good life. So those are the three phases. The programs are really designed to more, they more have to do, I've organized them on time-based, you know, how much, and, and I also really try to make them affordable. So the high-level plan is a lot of my time. It is a group program, but there tend to be less people in the group, maybe 10 to 15 in a cohort, maybe 20 at the most. And it focuses on all three phases. So it's a 90-day program. It leads people through. There's a lot of support. They are part of a private community, et cetera. I have a middle-of-the-road plan because sometimes that's not going to work for somebody. They they don't want all of that. It's a group program. Everything is available online, as it is in the, uh, in the um, higher-level program as well. Everything's available online, all of the videos and things, materials. But we're really going to focus on phase one and phase two. So it's much more practically oriented. Of course, we're going to deal with habits and things like that. But we're more focusing on getting the sugar out and then living a sugar-free lifestyle at the practical level, personalized, getting your food plan in order. And it's not as personalized. They don't have as much access to me, but they there is a group community. And the first level yep. is really just to do it yourself. It's a coaching club where... Once a month, there's an action pack, which is going to be one of the topics in that 12-step course. And there is a recipe library. There, there's an ebook library. There's weekly Q&A. And, you know, that's obviously the economic investment is less for that program, middle of the road for the middle program, and a little bit higher for the third. So, and I, I, I really believe it's important for people to get help. So my programs are really quite affordable and I really, I, I, th- I just think it's so important to take that into account. And if you're think, thinking about targeting, like who you're targeting, it's people with diabetes or blood sugar issues. Blood sugar issues. I target, of course, if Not you're diabetic, pre-diabetic, having yo-yo weight gain, insulin resistance, yes. But also if you're just someone who wants to go sugar-free or you're, right. you're working with someone because you have sugar addiction, I really... I say I put the how into all of this. So when you're talking with your therapist, your counselor, you're not really getting into which is the best kind of yogurt, you know, that I should buy. Or like you were saying, I want to be vegetarian. Can you help me come up with a week worth of food so that, you know, I can eat or I don't really know how to cook. I do coach and cook classes in all of these programs. So I put the how into all of that. So it's basically, bottom line, anyone who is struggling with their relationship for sugar and it's impacting them in their health or mentally or in any way. Yeah. So just to paraphrase, what I think you're saying that is unique to your program is you have an acute sense of the blood sugar issues because that is something you know. But of course, it's invited to anybody who wants to be sugar free. And you introduce, like you said, the how, like you'll actually show how to declutter, how to cook, how to shop, how to choose. Right. 
It, and I also, for people who are trying to go sugar-free, I, I see a lot of, can I eat this? Can I eat that? What's the rule? My program is, really teaches people how their body works. And as you said, I, I make it easy. You don't have to be a doctor to understand how your body works the way that I teach them so that they can start to take responsibility and an intuitive knowing of what they can eat if they're trying to go sugar-free, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And the reliance on, uh, there's a lot, they can start to be a lot more self-motivated and have a lot more confidence in what to eat and how okay. to eat. Good. So, so you mentioned about your books, and that is something that really struck me was how clear you write your material. So well, thank tell, you. us, tell us about your uh, two books. Well, yeah. the first the first book, The Diabetes Coach Approach, came about because back when I was doing it, there was no such thing as a diabetes coach. There was one program in England that I was copying. Huh. So I really wanted to understand, I wanted people to understand how coaching could help someone who has diabetes or sugar issues and and we've talked I'm not going to go into it, we've talked about how the coach can really help and be a complement to that program and it was the genesis of the 12 steps and it it was very much a workbook because another thing that I strongly believe is that reading a book is not enough you have to take action so if you got that book it's it's every chapter has activities and steps that people can take and it goes through those 12 steps that we've talked about. Since then, one, a lot of things have, my views have changed on what you can't, what you sh- maybe is best to eat, not best to eat. So, and I'm also broadened my scope. The first workbook really was more focused on diabetes. The second one, Break Free from the Blood Sugar Blues, is really like we talked about, that the more broad spectrum of people who are trying to deal with sugar issues, which honestly, Vera, for most people who have the sugar issues, they may not know it, but they're having under, most are having underlying blood sugar issues. They're having underlying insulin resistance. Oh yeah. Like that, even if it's not diagnosed by anybody. I'm I'm convinced there's a parallel process happening. One's in the body and one's in the brain. And and that book's going to be coming out. I'm still in the process of uh, pulling it all together, but it's not so different than the first book other than it's really going into more detail about the food. There's more recipes in there and also just a little bit different approach about all the different medications have changed, the way we look at sugar. Even now I'm adding chapters in there about which are the best sugar substitutes because of all the controversy around erythritol and some of the other things. So just trying to bring it up to date. Okay. Actually, do you want to give us one piece of information, a tidbit about the sugars, the sweeteners? Yeah, the sweeteners that I most, and I used to recommend erythritol a lot. The issue with that is they've now been doing some studies that show it may have some effect on the heart in some people. So, you know, my theory is if there's something else that you can use, maybe avoid it. I don't think it's the end of the world if you use a little bit of erythritol, but if you're worried about it, then you could use stevia. My go-tos are stevia, monk fruit. There's a new one out there, allulose. I'm playing around with that a little bit. Those are the three basically that I use. I'm going to say, and and probably some people are going to gasp in absolute horror, but sometimes only if I'm making a certain dessert for a special occasion, I may use a syrup that has a teeny bit of Splenda in there. I mean, I'm not big on those types of sweeteners like saccharin or definitely not aspartame. I'm on the fence with uh, with Splenda for some people. It really just depends on what their particular view is, 
how they feel about it. So yeah, I, I haven't ruled out Splenda, although with these sweeteners, you want to really be using them in moderation. If someone's telling me that they're putting it in everything, yeah, there's no moderation. That's a problem. They're just trying to recreate the sweet from what they were doing before. Yeah, which which we see a lot in the Facebook group, people saying, well, so what can I have now instead of? And Exactly. And my, my thing, like I said, is no, change your taste buds. Yeah. And so that you don't need it. I'm just tell you this real quick. When I go to a restaurant, if I eat coleslaw, especially at a deli, I might as well be eating a dessert. They put uh-huh. some sugar in there. Now, most people are totally, they, well, they have no idea. They don't even taste it. But when you start to change your taste buds, yes. it becomes so different. And so you really don't need to be cooking and adding sugar into every recipe to, to give it a sweet taste. And there's plenty of other ways to do that. So, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, in your work, have you come across, I mean, I'm seeing it all the time. I'm a doctor, so I would, but uh, the whole medication thing, like the, 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 there's just been an explosion of yes. interest in the uh, most recent ones, especially Ozempic and, yeah. and uh, it's the pro- you know, yeah. with the Ozempic, let me just say about medications. When I was first yeah. diagnosed, I like everyone was like, I don't want to go on a lot of medications. And I didn't. And I actually used a lot of targeted supplements to keep from going on medication. They worked really well. I'm a big believer in supplements in the beginning. I don't think I could have managed my blood sugars as well as I did without taking chromium and um, without taking alpha-lipoic acid. And I use Benableaf. And there's a lot of really safe supplements out there. However, I would say this is not something you want to do on your own. I'm not a doctor. I always make people understand you've got to talk to your, you've got to let your doctor know what you're doing. I was work. That's why I say choose a doctor that maybe knows about this stuff because she was able to help me incorporate those things. Most doctors don't know about these supplements. No, they don't. And so that's why I help people with it, but I'm not a doctor. And so I'm really careful to say you've got to let whoever your medical team know if you want to use, but I will say supplements can be very, very helpful. And so, but doctors want to do the ozem. That's that's you want to do the drugs, and if you want to go without drugs, then you've really got to take it seriously. That's the other thing. I work with a lot of clients who come. They come to me. They last about a month. I don't want medication. I don't want medication. About half when they see what they have to do, they can't. They can't deal with it. And that's a whole mental thing, like you were saying. And I try to say, well, let's go a little slower. Well, if you're diabetic and you're going a little slower, then you may need some medication. The only thing I want to say to people is that medication is not a failure. Everybody's biochemistry is different. The state of your pancreas is different. And sometimes you can go on a medication and go off of it. So I'm not anti-taking medication for diabetes, but I will say that if you really put your mind to it and you want to, Yes, you can probably do with it without those medications. I'm not anti-Ozempic. I've t- uh, I will tell you I have taken it in the past. I didn't have any really bad side effects from it. I think it's way being overprescribed for the weight loss thing. You don't lose that much weight on Ozempic. I don't even know where they're coming from. You might lose five to seven pounds. It's not. It's definitely not worth it. But that's how I feel about you know taking medication uh, for diabetes. It's important to keep your diabetes low. You want to understand your medications so that there's certain medications. I basically, I don't want to go on and on about medications. That's okay. What what about some of the other tools that people use, like intermittent fasting? I think you said. Yeah, I actually love intermittent fasting, and it's pretty much how I live at this point because I'm not a big breakfast eater anyway. 
And there was a point where my blood sugars were being a little crazy. And so someone suggested intermittent fasting. So basically, I think it can be a great tool. If you have an eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia or something like that, I think you have to be careful with the intermittent fasting because it can Mm -hmm. sort of, I would imagine, maybe trigger certain things. But if you don't have those issues, I eat between 11 and 8 at night. So, and I have found that really works. Now, the reason it works is because there's something called postprandial blood sugar response. So after you've eaten, your blood sugars raise and you're using glucose in your body. That's what your body's using for energy after you eat. That's what it goes for first. And it's going to use that glucose until it's used up. So if you don't have a fasting period, it's not going to get to the fat stores. So when you intermittent fast, people want to do it for weight loss. It's doing those four hours right before you eat when your body's done with the glucose, then it can be really helpful for weight management. But I have found the simpler I eat, the better I am for my blood sugar. So intermittent fasting works great. And I can help people do that. The word breakfast is break fast. So if you're intermittent fasting, you say, okay, well, what do you want to eat for your break fast, even if you're going to do it at 11 o'clock at night? So it's totally doable on my food plan. There's some people who just want to try it. And trying it with assistance is really the best way to do it. So I can lead people through that. Okay. Now you mentioned something about how, uh, just in terms of closing up, uh, was there anything else that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell about your program or about your no, philosophy? No, no. Okay. I do think, I do like that one question though, about like, cause I've noticed there's been several people in our Facebook group that have come in and they've just been diagnosed with diabetes or type two diabetes. So where, what would be like, how oh, do I start with yes, this? Cause course, it sorry. feels so overwhelming and all-encompassing and like the doctor just tells you and you leave and now you're trying to figure it out so what would you say to those I would say don't go it alone and that's why I am so happy to be working with you guys I mean I try not to overdo it in in the group but you do have to get some help that's why I run the seven-day challenge every month because you you weren't born with a chip in your head to know how to eat for, you know, diabetes. So you do have to get some assistance. And it can be, you know, coming into your group. It can be, you know, doing some reading, you know. But basically, I would tell them, you know, don't go it alone. The first thing that you need to do, it can be pretty straightforward, is cut out added sugar. Start that chart that I have, you know, start cutting back on the on the grains and on the things that cause your sugars to have a quick start. And especially they they are very unaware that you have to be very careful with fruit. And a lot of nutritionists will tell you you can eat as much fruit as you want. No, you cannot. I, I am very adamant on that stance. And I know on a nutritionist, it would probably be, you don't know what you're talking about because I've experimented with it. Believe me, there have been summers where I'm seeing this big fruit bowl and I'm like, you know what? The nutritionists, dietitians say I can eat fruit. I'm going to eat fruit. Oh, a week later, blood sugars, 300, you know, 400. It's just my personal experience. Everyone's biochemistry is different, but I don't know of any diabetics who have just eaten fruit two or three times a day and as much fruit as they want and done okay. Now, do you feel though that uh, if you have fruit and you pair it with a protein and fat, it's going to have less of a blood sugar effect and therefore it can be consumed in more of a safe way? Yes, absolutely. So I have clients who want to eat a little bit of an apple for a snack. That's so apples have a lot of sugar in, but if you 
putting some sugar-free paint, and, and then you got the nut butter issues. So that's a whole other thing, and cheese issue. But if you maybe eat with some chicken, you know, have apple and, and have some chicken on the side. Yes, if you eat the fruit with protein, and I have a whole chart that tells people how much. Um, and the other thing people don't realize is that fruit has fructose in it. Nutritional say there's more fructose than sucrose in fruit, so it's okay. But the problem is that fructose is metabolized in your liver, and then you're going to get high triglycerides. And then when your liver can't handle anymore, you're still going to have the same issues. So, you know, that's why. And I just say that for newly diagnosed because they don't realize it. So they'll come and say, well, I've been eating healthy, you know, and then, you know, I see for breakfast they had a fruit bowl. Well, you know. That is or, or a whole watermelon when it's watermelon. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and, that, and that's just education and knowledge. So that's what my number one thing is, you know, don't go it alone, you, you know, get some reading, get some help. And from someone who, you know, you trust that, you know, knows what the issues are. And where can our listeners find you? They can and find me at um, my new book, the book that you want to uh, yeah. give out. Yeah. My website is www.com blood sugar central all one word.com and i would say that's the best place to go because once you go there you can join my facebook group you can get all the free books that and and ebooks that i have and you can try the 7 day challenge rather than give out all the addresses for all those things it's right on the home page all three of those so and you've got there's some free books that people can start with right away. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love is, you know, how much I love your, your, your group. I, I, I just love it. And it helps me so much because I do have emotional eatings with, with, with sugar and all those things, you know? And so I find it's, um, you know, if people are in your group and want just a little bit of more practical, you know, in my Facebook group, there's a ton of recipes. I know that's what they like. And also, I think that when I start in June or July to offer the coaching club, which is going to be under $30, you know, a month, it's going to be very affordable. That will be another great place that they'll have access to a recipe library and all sorts of the food plan, things like that. That's great. That's an amazing domain you got there, bloodsugarcentral.com, right? I love it. Yeah, I even have some cool things on there. I have something called the Serenity Cafe. And the uh, Coach and Cook Kitchen, which I'm going to be doing lives and things from. So they'll be able to get cooking classes from there and, awesome. and do some fun things. And I'll be doing weekly meetings and things like that. So there'll be a lot going on as everything ramps up. Great. And we have our signature question, which is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar and or sugar addiction, what would you tell her? Well, I would tell myself to go easy on myself you know, life happens. And sometimes, like I said, I'm going to go off and sometimes I'm going to be fine, but that I can always get back on track. And the most important thing is to not do what I used to do when I was really young, which is take a whole year of just going off into, you know, some sort of not good territory and to get help to get back on track. But also I would say I wouldn't, you know, I would have liked to have known more about how my body works when I was younger so that I wouldn't have gotten diagnosed in the first place. And that, to close, is really one of the reasons that I do this is because there's no need for people to go full-blown diabetic if it's type 2. I'm not talking about type 1, but for type 2 diabetes, if you're keeping up with it and you find out your insulin resistance or you have prediabetes, 
that can totally be turned around. And I will say, believe me, my friends, it's not the end of the world. I'm living a great, happy life. But if you can avoid it, you do not want to go to full-blown diabetes. So take advantage of all the things that are out there and heal your body so that you can, you know, not have to go this route. It's just a little more trouble. I will say I live, you can live a great life with diabetes. It's definitely not the end of the world. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Janet. Thank you. You're very welcome. I really appreciate you guys having me and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. And, and folks, please check out her literature. It's really good and her work, her groups. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.